0: house. You were right. I can't take her away, she's too unstable. Maybe even more so than Malcolm, if that's possible. Oh, it's entirely- Don't say another word. <sighs> Just for a second, be the man that I married all those years ago, not this monster. Just for a second, be him. We're going to lose them, Martin. They'll be arrested. Devoured by the media, imprisoned or worse. What do you need from me? A partner. Help me save them.
1: Of course. And we will. Even these chains can't stop me. Nope.
0: There's nothing I won't do to save my family.
2: to The Surgeon's Files, your unofficially official Prodigal Son podcast. I am Mike Caputo.
0: And I'm Sheila McGann.
2: Tonight we're discussing episode five of season two, Bad Manners. I can't even believe we're up to episode five already. It feels like the season literally just started.
0: I-, I had to do the same thing. I was like, five? Really? Five?
2: We're already a month in. Is that possible? Is it possible the Super Bowl's already happened and Groundhog's Day is come and gone and Valentine's Day is this week? It's It's insane.
0: I feel like January, is it was long, but it was a blip as well. Like, while I was going through it, it was long. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, how is it already, like, mid-February?
2: Yeah, it's one of those classic, I can't believe what a long year this week's been. You know, it's like one yeah. of those, that, that was January. <laughs> I,
0: I say that a lot yeah. these days. This one was written by Marcus Dalzine. This one was directed by Chris Grismer. It appears that this is a first out for both of them with Prodigal Son.
2: Which, you know, it's it's a really interesting kind of weird episode for like two newcomers to kind of hit out of the park. You know, in, in a lot of ways, it had a lot of the beats. But in some ways, everyone's acting a little bit off in this episode. Yeah. But in a way that's consistent with season two, because everyone's kind of in a weird place. Everyone, everyone's got something going on.
0: Right. Everyone's kind of in recovery mode from a lot of things Uh, recovery mode or
2: or actively going through something you know like even like JT actively going through stuff so you know everyone is in kind of a weird place so I guess if you're gonna if you're gonna have an episode where you're gonna bring on two guys who haven't written for the show before maybe a good one to start them off with so anyway yeah you guys should definitely stick around until we're done breaking down tonight's episode because we have an exclusive interview with the fantastic Halston Sage you may know her as our favorite twisted sister Ainsley Whitley so really looking forward to the interview really forward to you guys listening to what Halston has to say. So
0: Yeah, that's gonna be really exciting. Also the playlist that we have created and we continue to curate for you. A little bit of Prodigal Sun mood music to help you along as you wait the days in between the episodes
2: just as a reminder in case it's the first time you're turning into the surgeon files we don't really recap the episode we don't go blow by blow we, we kind of go character by character and talk about the major themes that they have we assume that you've seen the episode if you haven't seen the episode and you don't want to be spoiled well you should pause this go watch and then come back and listen with us and interact with us and leave us comments on Apple leave us comments at podclubhouse.com leave us comments in wherever social media are we'll find you just you know tag Pod Clubhouse somewhere and uh, we'd love to hear from you guys that being said i think we have to talk a little bit about this week's episode because we had debutante killings (laughs) who who is killing debutantes who's got that kind of you know matters matter i guess or maybe they don't matter anymore and that's the problem i don't know
0: i didn't know that debutantes were still a thing
2: not in the north especially i don't know that debutantes have ever been a thing in the north I, I mean maybe there's a high society aspect of it. Clearly Ainsley went through etiquette school and you know, I, I you know, I've heard about finishing school all my life. I figured that was the thing they did in Connecticut. Yes, <laughs> I didn't know that was a thing in New York. The, you know, the Connecticut for sure, but...
0: absolutely, but New York now. We're we're too uh, we're too down here.
2: <laughs> right, right, for sure. I, before we even get into the episode and the Baton killings, I, I have to give a shout out because it, the casting on the show is fantastic. The not only the regular cast, but they always get really strong character actors to come in and play the whatever of the week, the killer, or a witness, whatever the important guest starring role is that week for the crime of the week. But this week, we get two people who really hit it out of the box. So you have Kate Burton, who plays Sarah Windsor, and then you have Anna Baryshnikov, who's playing Rachel. I can talk about Kate Burton because I was a huge fan of Scandal, Shonda Rhimes' Scandal. And Kate Burton played Sally Langston in, yes, uh, in yes. Scandal. And so if you guys know that, you'll understand that she's one of the lavas of liberty. And so <laughs> Sally Langston, great character. One of the best you love to hate or characters maybe ever in TV. Probably definitely a top 10. I, lo- I love Sally Langston. So it was great to see Kate Burton. As soon as she came on, I was like, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> yeah, she was a great
0: addition. Very, very cool.
2: What'd you think about Anna Baryshnikov?
0: So I didn't really pay attention to the credits as it was coming on. And so I'm looking at her later on. I'm like, God, who does she remind me of? Like, like, I was like, oh, I've seen her before somewhere. And I just IMDB looked her up and I was like, Oh, oh, you're you've got a famous dad. Well, good for you. So I was and I just for those re- that
2: for those that don't follow ballet, who's your bad.
0: <laughs> Mikhail Baryshnikov. So he is a very famous Russian dancer, defected from Russia uh to the United States when the Soviet Union was still in existence. So um has basically put ballet on the map for many people. He's also a crossover movie star, so he's been in several uh TV and movies um over the years.
2: And if you were impressed with Anna's performance tonight, as Rachel, the disturbed love child secret with her own killing room and secret lair. Uh, You should go check out Dickinson, because she plays Emily Dickinson's sister in that series on Apple TV+, Lavinia Dickinson. And she is great, and Dickinson's a great show, and everyone should go watch Dickinson, 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 Dickinson. Season 2 just came out. It just started. Season 2 at the end of January. Uh, Go get get caught up in Season 1, and then watch Season 2. And you can enjoy more Anna Baryshnikov there. So that's the end of my Dickinson pitch. I'm on this whole rant, podcast podcast I go on or do I pitch Dickinson a little bit because I think it was the best thing of 2019 and it's certainly I think the best thing that Apple TV Plus has to offer and I think everyone should be watching it.
0: Well that is on my list of things to watch but after that Recap and just endorsement. I think that has to move up to the top of my my to watch list.
2: Uh, it's fantastic, I mean, especially for all the people that are going goo goo faced over Bridgerton.
0: Yeah, I'm having a little bit of withdrawal. So uh, yeah, so so
2: Dickinson <laughs> Dickinson is a, is a nice companion to Bridgerton, except for it's actually good, unlike Bridgerton, which was not. So well, yeah, yeah. It, Well, I know I know people. A lot of people liked it, and you should go listen to the Pod Clubhouse Frisky Friday in February. Love it or leave it, which uh, came out last week and covered bridgerton um and we have a great little panel defending the show and you have me being grandpa gus in the corner screaming at the clouds and saying why well, it was bad yeah but anyway go watch dickinson it's definitely worth your time and you can get some more anna brushnikov and she doesn't kill anyone in that show so you know you're oh, the, thanks for the spoiler it's a different face of anna brushnikov the non-killery non-stabby version mm. of it uh what are we calling tonight for murder weapon tally what are our mur- what are our murders here to murder weapons here tonight?
0: Well, it it was kind of twofold, right? So it was it started off with roofies and uh led to debreathers.
2: Now, roofies obviously everyone has heard of. There there's a version of uh of either several versions of different date rape drugs. But the DeBreather sounded terrifying. Is that possibly a real thing?
0: Well, you know, I have a morbid curiosity for all things involving <laughs> death and destruction, so I was like, deep breather, hmm, like I had a vision in my mind of what this was from the episode, like there was this mask thing and it, it had like this very like World War One kind of mustard gas preventer kind of vibe to it, but I, I again, my, my safari search history is going to be very questionable one day. Yeah, so deep breathers are a real thing, they, uh, they were invented in the 90s and it's based on scuba technology, so So instead of oxygen being delivered, oxygen is being removed from the person who is attached to the apparatus. And they slowly go into a state of hypoxia, which is oxygen deprivation, and eventually they suffocate
2: would make such a thing why would you make such a such a morbid fucking device what it could possibly be other than your murder enthusiasts who's who's using a to it's
0: part of the the right to die community for assisted suicide euthanasia it's meant to be a humane way and it's undetectable so so Idrissa was on the nose with this it's virtually undetectable because there's no chemical there's no toxin there's no there's nothing introduced into the body other than a lack of oxygen it's It says it's meant to be humane. A guy named John Hoffness is the one who invented it in the nineties around the time that Dr. Jack Vorkian was alive and kicking with the, all of his stuff with the assisted suicide so um There's a push in Canada to make it more uh, widespreadly, widely available. Uh, I don't believe it's available in the United States. That was the extent of my research. I was like, I think I have enough.
2: Oh, my God. I mean, yeah, we we should definitely talk. You definitely need to clear out your browser history more or start using some like anonymous internet cafes for the amount of uh, wacky research that you do. I just
0: keep putting quotes around research, research.
2: So breathers are uh, a freaky invention. A cool idea that actually came up in this episode that I had to go check out to see if it was real. The roofie detecting nail polish that Ainsley claims to use, uh, which prevented her from drinking the poison tea that, you know, allowed her to stay awake. And so she could help Malcolm take out Rachel at the end of the episode. I was so curious to see if this was an actual technology. I went looking and it's actually based on real technology that was being developed, but actually has not. Ever come to market. So there's a company called Undercover Colors that like as far back in like two as like 2014, it was like a group of students from North Carolina State University, I believe. I think it was like four friends there, that said that announced they were looking for funding to progress their product, which was called Undercover Colors. And it would be basically a nail polish. You would dip your nail polish in the suspect drink, and it would, you know, depending on the colors it turned, it would indicate whether or not there was a presence of several common roofy Drugs like Rohanol, like what we use here, GHB, a couple others. Unfortunately, it actually got held up by the FDA because of the interaction with with the with food and drink and your finger and the nail polish. And the company eventually actually abandoned the plan. Uh, Undercover Colors actually still exists. You can go to undercovercolors.com. They actually eventually produced a rape drug kit called the sip chip, which essentially is like a small token sized apparatus that you can drop some liquor on some of your drink on. And depending on the color, oh, not the colors, depending on whether or not it gives you one line or two lines will indicate the presence of a date rape drug, which sounds a lot less subtle than just dipping maybe a finger in a drink. But there you go. So the nail, the nail polish is based on technology that was being developed, but as far as, as right now does not actually exist. Seems like something that we should have out in the world, shouldn't it?
0: as a woman we we have the the girl code of you know like you don't accept drinks from guys like if the bartender hands you a drink that's one thing but you don't accept a drink from somebody who just like walks up to you be like hey beautiful here this is for you so um yeah like you go to the bathroom you leave your drink that drink is done you get a new one so there's there's like this culture among women that you know we already are on the lookout for this kind of shit so um yeah a nail polish would be very helpful but your spidey sense also needs to be at play too
2: yeah you know, but you should probably be able to accept tea at a etiquette school though that I mean yeah. that that I mean, that should be something that should feel safe, so a credit to Ainsley and maybe a little peek inside Ainsley's own mind that she would be suspect correctly as it turned out of anything being served at the old Windsor School of etiquette. What is it with Malcolm and Ainsley and their parents and these boarding schools that they sent them to in uh in Westchester Jesus Christ I mean. Nothing yeah. good was happening at these yeah. schools.
0: I was so excited; I was like, "Oh, we're gonna get to see like some sort of Ainsley origin story." Okay,
2: <laughs> I mean, in some ways we did. I mean, in some ways you could see how it formed and twisted. You know, uh, well, how it formed and twisted Rachel, but you could see the backlash. That the training there and some of the lessons learned, things like, you know, the reason that the reason Rachel gives that Miss Windsor has a doll made of the likeness and given to every student at her school is because dolls are useful to model behavior and that they sit silently and patiently as girls ought to do. Yikes. <laughs> Yikes with a capital Y. Oh, my yeah, Lord. No. <laughs> I mean, and this poor Miss Windsor sitting there, not poor Miss Windsor, but poor Miss Windsor sitting there wondering why funding is drying up and why no one is coming to her school anymore. It's because, lady, it's like you're it's like you're you're an extra out of Dickinson. Like you're still living in like Victoria, Victorian England.
0: Yeah, I feel like I feel like there are certain things that have happened in the last, I don't know, maybe 70, 100 years. years—and been like, mm, OK, we're going to start moving away from that whole, you know, silence is golden kind of thing when it comes to women. So.
2: Yeah, yeah, not a lot of great messages, not a lot of... uh,
0: Positive feminine Yes,
2: uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gloria Steinem is not going to be attending the Windsor School of Etiquette anytime soon. Yeah, she's
0: definitely not giving a line of credit or anything like that for the school. But the dolls, Mike, again, we're back to these dolls.
2: Fucking dolls. Dolls creep me out. Porcelain dolls in particular, uh, I find super creepy. When you bunch them together, there was a person I knew in my life... It was a relative of a relative, and this person used to collect porcelain dolls and had them displayed, like, on risers in their living room. And so probably had about 40-plus dolls shoulder-to-shoulder.
0: Can I tell you that, like, I'm having, like, skeevy, like—
2: oh oh (laughs) yeah i did not ever want to be in this house let alone this room at nighttime when night fell i gotta get the fuck out of there because
0: like moonlight glinting off those dead eyes no thank you
2: oh my god it's so creepy and then watching the doll be in the hallway rachel Why? i mean okay fine you have a doll fine every you know your mother your secret mother wants everyone into school to have a doll why are you positioning it in the hall like it's like a cabbage patch kid you're playing with in the 80s what are we doing here (laughs) rachel what's happening what we oh, come on that's the first indicator i mean malcolm should have fucking been profiling rachel from the get-go with that kind of behavior that's that's some nonsense right there
0: yeah the fact like when they brought the dolls into, i was like oh for god's sake i can't so it's just reminding me of the the alienist podcast that we did the alias angel of darkness and there was a, a lot of dolls and a lot of eyes being gouged out there too and i was like oh god do we have to revisit this again
2: yeah. Uh, yeah, I you know I didn't like it then either. And listen, people listening out there, there's something you need to know about your friend Mike. I don't like eye stuff.
0: Oh no, me neither.
2: Ooh. I do not like eye stuff. I will never wear contacts. I wear. I will wear the 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 thickest glasses man can make uh, before I ever put contacts in my eyes. I can't watch women put on eye makeup. I don't want things really? going in your eyeballs. No, 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 no. I do not like eye stuff. I don't like fingers in your eyes. I don't like eyes being messed with or touched in any way creeps me out disturbs me i do not like
0: when i was in, in high school we had to dissect an eye i was like i'm going to the nurse because i'm going to vomit so oh um. i
2: stayed for that class but i had my lab partner do that uh in uh, i guess it must have been biology it was biology, biology yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 i'm pretty sure i had my partner i i, I you know i was able to handle the tests uh, they had to do all the dissection whoosh i had i had to dissect a a, a guinea pig in eighth grade in a science class and same thing actually there i actually ended up taking a week off from school because i i was conveniently sick i just couldn't deal with it and the and and even talking about it's making me
0: i know okay let's move on so
2: no, Danny tonight, which is a bummer. But I'm curious. Do you think uh, Gil, Gil mentions that she is being used by Vice right now? Is this a reason just not to have her in the episode, or do you think this is hinting at a future storyline for Danny that we can maybe be looking uh, looking forward to?
0: I'm hoping that it's some sort of like interesting plot line that Malcolm gets to like be showered in cocaine again.
2: That was fun. I'm hopeful, too, that it's hinting that it's hinting at a next plot line, because you'll recall last week we talked about how episode five in season one was a big Danny episode where we got a lot of her backstory. And so we were kind of hoping that maybe week you know, episode five of this season would, would hold the same fate. So maybe this is a tease in this episode at a storyline coming down. But who knows? Maybe, maybe it was just, you know, a scheduling issue. Missing Danny this week, but it was nice to have JT back. But we'll talk about him in a minute.
0: The the name Debutant Slayer, it doesn't quite have the same, I don't know, like ring for me that like the Junkyard Killer or the Surgeon has. What do you think?
2: Yeah, I wasn't a fan of it. I, I feel like Ainsley, who, who coined this one, and I feel like she's coined a bunch of them, uh, as it turns out, because of the, the role she plays in her job and covering it. I, I feel like she's done better. I think she came up with Junkyard Killer last year, I feel like. And so, yeah, Debutante Slayer didn't hit me the same way. But it was nice to have a new serial killer in town, short-lived as it was. This was like a one-and-done serial killer episode. Going back to the dolls for a second, and and as it relates to the Debutante Slayer, I I think we have to talk about Falvey, because he doesn't really warrant a discussion as a character in the episode. Super creepy dude, super weirdo dude, despite his protestations. But do you think that we all prejudged him for being really creepy as fuck maybe even more so than was warranted isn't a guy allowed to make a money off the sex doll trade or you know is is that so wrong if there are customers in japan that are willing to pay for authentic looking sex dolls
0: guys gotta make a living times have been hard so like i'm not judging him for that i mean i was just like i knew he wasn't the killer i knew he wasn't part of the actual doing of it He's a romantic,
2: Malcolm, but my romantics aren't serial killers.
0: But yeah, he was, he really was just absolutely creepy as fuck. He's actually, the actor who plays him is Peter Breen and he was in Shutter Island, which is another like equally creepy as, you know, fuck kind of movie, but he plays a serial killer in that movie and he's being subject to the uh, interrogations of Leonardo DiCaprio.
2: So one could say that creepy as fuck is his milieu.
0: Yeah, he's, he, he does it well.
2: Uh, just a little little Easter egg that had to be intentional. So Malcolm comes into the interrogation room when Gil is talking to Falvey and we learn that Falvey's first doll's name is Dolores. Now, that has to be a Westworld shutout because the first like robot doll, you know, the first animatronic it's not an animatronic, it's a robot the the it made in the Westworld world world is dolores is one of the central characters we we learned over time that her her name was dolores so if something tells me that has to be some kind of westworld shout out i have no idea what the connection could be between you know chris fedak or and Sam Sklaver and you know jonathan nolan and and the people over at westworld but there you go a little a little fun easter egg uh, that maybe is a total coincidence, but to me, it has to be some kind of uh, Easter egg shadow. out so.
0: I didn't pick up on that, but that is a very astute no- notation there.
2: Let's <laughs> we'll get into the characters now. Let's start with JT, because we hadn't seen him for two weeks. Backstory. So JT is given the alternative that if he wants to proceed with the complaint against O'Malley, who is the cop who really roughed him up uh, outside of Malcolm's apartment... Him and O'Malley will both be suspended for 20 days pending the investigation, which seems patently unfair. In the end, JT decides not to pursue the complaint. Uh, He gives this quote. This is a paraphrase, but he says that hatred that you feel is poison. It says to O'Malley, and I'm not going to let it poison me. And him and Gil go off to go provide Malcolm some backup. Is that the right decision? Do you agree? I mean, it's JT's decision, so it's right for him, I guess. But did you agree with that? Did you agree? Did you agree with JT to not pursue the complaint against O'Malley?
0: It's it's not so cut and dry. It's not so black and white here because they're both going to get punished for lodging the complaint if they're doing this 20 day suspension for. Both of them, so the 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 person bringing the complaint and the person who's being complained against. So that just feels like a CYA move on the part of the NYPD, and I can't really see a union endorsing that. The fact that he's letting it go, it makes sense for who JT is because he's not going to let it go without saying something, and he did say that. And that line actually kind of gave me like a little bit of I don't know, it was a little dusty in my room at that point. So my eyes were a little wet after that, but he said his piece and he, he let, he's letting a sleeping dog lie for right now, but I just, I don't know. It it didn't feel good with me. It didn't. How about you?
2: I agree with you, but at the same time hearing the arbitrator say it's going to get messy, basically guaranteeing retribution to some extent, even if it comes in the form of paperwork and things being harder for JT, he he's kind of being told here I felt that you can pursue this, it's your right, he says all sarcastically. But JT is going to feel some kind of punishment for this, but beyond the 20-day suspension, I feel. So I think it's the right decision for him. He's got a new baby at home. He doesn't want this to continue to darken his doorstep. And he wants to be a cop. And that was always one of his central concerns, the idea that, you know, he's busted his ass to become a detective and devoted his career to the NYPD. And he doesn't want to stop doing that. He wants to continue being a cop and being a good detective and and helping major crimes and, and working on the team. So from that point of view, I agree with him. That it's the right decision. Unfortunately, it's definitely not the fair decision, right? But we don't live in a world that's fair. Exactly. And fair fair rarely comes into the equation in real life. So I appreciate the show having this little bit of it's a shitty resolution, but it gets JT to be able to move past it.
0: But I don't think that this is going to end this storyline i just i don't think that o'malley's gonna let it go even if he doesn't do anything because he's already on the radar i have a feeling that this has been widespread enough within the different precincts that this continues and this might just be my own i don't know dark view of the world sometimes what do you think
2: i am inclined to agree i don't think i think o'malley seems like a real piece of shit I think he seems like a really small kind of man, not physically, but emotionally uh, and personality wise, uh, a a small man. And I think JT is going to continue to feel retribution and escalation for even having gone to the union rep uh, about this, going to the union for this. The, The idea that he fought back to any degree, unfortunately, I think is going to continue to have blowback on him. You know, really, what's what's to say the next time he goes to put in a call for backup that he's not going to get the same kind of treatment again or something like that. So, unfortunately, I don't think this is the end of it. Uh, And my gut is that if it comes back and I think it will, it's going to come back at the worst possible time. You know, it's going to it's going to rear its head at the time when JT or the team most desperately needs some kind of assistance from the from the police force at large and it's not going to be there and that that kind of incident's going to be the tipping point for jt and gill and the team
0: yeah that that feels like a logical continuation of the story arc is that they're going to get screwed over at some point as as blowback for even bringing this up
2: we're not going to cover too much of Ainsley tonight. I, I don't think we need to discuss that because we're going to cover a lot of it our, with our interview with Halston uh, at the end of this episode. But that being said, I think there's a couple of things that are worth talking about. This is a recurring theme with Ainsley, but she doesn't blink when she finds her dead former classmate, uh, when she finds her former classmate dead at a mirror in her debutante gown when she finds Violet. No, no, she makes a commercial out of it for her for her uh, for her TV station. This is kind of the same way she filmed her boyfriend being operated on instead of being sad or emotionally affected by her boyfriend being physically wounded last year inside Claremont. Is this one of the more disturbing aspects of Ainsley's ambition and personality?
0: This is a revisiting of that. And I I got that same vibe when I saw this. I mean, the fact that she wasn't even there wasn't even like a gasp because obviously it's going to be startling to some degree to see somebody with their eyes gouged out sitting in a debutante dress in her twenties. Yeah. It just, I don't know. It was, it left a very weird taste in my mouth. And I was just like, all right, where is this in the larger picture of things? And I was getting just some, just, A lot of strange vibes from her. And this was just uh, the one, like, the biggest one for me. That was just like, there is something truly off. And we're not seeing all of it just yet, but there's definitely things lurking below the surface there.
2: She really seems to fit the textbook term of, like, psychopath. You know, the idea of a psychopath is someone who is callous, unemotional, morally depraved. So it's not someone who feels bad about the things they do. It's not someone who uh, is angry about the things they do. It's someone who is just emotionally removed from the things that they see and, and witness. Which is really disturbing because those kinds of people are really hard to predict, you know, because the, the lack of emotion makes it hard to pinpoint how they're going to behave in any kind of situation because something else is driving them. They're not being driven by emotions, which can be unpredictable, but also do have predictable patterns. When people are angry, they tend to do X, Y, or Z. When they're sad, they tend to do A, B, or C. When someone has is not being affected by their emotions, there's really no limit to what they can do, which is disturbing.
0: There was a, th- a moment that happened tonight that Malcolm asked Ainsley if she was upset that there was two dead debutantes. Ainsley's reaction was just so off, canned,
2: like like yeah. the mo- It was the most. Uh, it was the most. Pat reaction. Uh, You know, she says says essentially, right? uh, Oh, it's terrible. uh, Oh, it's terrible. Even like a little pitch in her voice. But it's quick to say, why would you ask me that?
0: I feel like that he was testing her or like starting to profile her in some sort of way because there is just this offness to what she's doing. And I, I think that was like the beginning of the psychopath test that he was doing on her.
2: There's a whole range of Ainsley that is very impulsive, very reckless, very... Martin like, which you can call her ambitious you know which a lot of people use as a four letter word you know especially as towards women it is used it tends to be used very derogatorily unfortunately but you can say that she's got drive but I think those explanations even in their most extreme usage only take you so far for how she behaves so I'm really looking forward to actually digging in with Halston on what her take on this character is and where the line between just wanting to be the best journalist and news reporter she can be so she can get Get ahead in that job versus having a genuine or too, too genuine an interest in the world of serial killers, serial killers and death. You know, it's, it's it, the, the line there seems very thin. And I don't know. I don't even know if she, if Ainsley herself knows on which side of that line she walks.
0: Well, following from that, how disturbing is it then that Ainsley is sitting, basically setting up shop in Martin's basement office? She's just there, like, what, soaking up all the ambiance? Yeah, and which this
2: this was a real, when she starts reading his journal and, and we're hearing Martin's voiceover... Uh, going through the pages and the detailed things, this is not this is not like when you're reading Highlights magazine in the dentist office as a kid, you know. This is this is some next level disturbing interest. It's like the guys, it's like the students at Hogwarts that go into the restricted section to learn about Horcruxes. Uh, yeah, you know, you, you gotta look sideways at those people because they're not they're not doing it just to better their education. They're doing it for nefarious purposes. So very very disturbing. Lots of lots of troubling question marks over Ainsley, and I hope Halston has some answers man because we gotta hold her to account girlfriend is on a slippery mm. slope to nowhere uh, or right. to nowhere well, to know good, good. <laughs> to nowhere good jinx ainsley girl get some help you need you need some therapy so let's switch over to malcolm Does this episode show that Malcolm is kind of back at his season two level of ease with Martin? You know, last week got real heated with the group therapy session inside Claremont and then Martin comes back at him. You know, we've seen a couple of episodes where Malcolm explodes at Martin, but then kind of apologizes or backtracks when he's learned that Martin was actually not in the wrong that Malcolm accused him of. Tonight, they were kind of back to... Easy relationship, which is how we've seen them more or less this season, where Martin can call and Malcolm still calls him Dr. Whitley but talks to him as like a friend or peer and not as serial killer father that he wants to run away from. What did you see in their relationship in this episode this week?
0: I definitely saw that Malcolm was a little bit different when it came to Martin. So when Martin called, Malcolm didn't seem to be quite as imposed upon or put upon when Martin calls, because usually there's an audible sigh. There's some little quip like, Oh, please tell me it's cancer or whatever, you know, that he's done up until this point. So I feel like there was some sort of like clearing of the air between them by By getting some of this this truth out in the open, it it cracked away at a little bit of the the divide between them. I think
2: there's something really interesting about Martin, the way he tries to speak in in code about murderous (laughs) things around Mr. David. Mr. David is a smart man. I don't know who Martin thinks he's fooling, but the, the conversations and ways that he has them. I don't think he's fooling anyone who may be listening in on Claremont's lines if those calls are recorded or whatnot. I, it's, uh, I just got I sometimes I find myself shouting at the TV like Martin you're not fooling anyone yeah. <laughs> they know you're talking about killing people you know and that's I always your eyes are getting
0: out. shifty he can see you
2: <laughs> yeah yeah your beard is getting all twitchy sir and Mr. David knows you better than you know yourself good man
0: is so is Malcolm making things more suspicious by stonewalling or ignoring Jessica and Ainsley as she indicates he is at the start of the episode
2: I think Malcolm always makes it worse when he tries to avoid someone instead of confronting them when he is worried about them. And this is a pattern of behavior Malcolm has had since the start of the series. When he's worried about his mother or he suspects his mother of doing something bad, he ignores his mother or tries to push her off. He does this with Ainsley on the regs. He is constantly keeping Ainsley at at arm's length, uh, quote unquote, for her own good. But you're doing more damage. You're making her have more questions. You're driving her to go and want to speak to her father. You're driving her to want to go and look through Martin's old journals. If Malcolm was, I think, even a modicum more open with those that he's trying to, quote, unquote, protect – I think he could probably actually avoid a lot of issues that he runs into, especially when it comes to Ainsley. She is not going to stop looking into something because Mar- because Malcolm tells her not to. That's not who she is. It's never been who she is. I mean, you go to the flashback at the start of this episode. She's competitive. Whether or not Malcolm is competitive with her, and that's a question to discuss, but she's certainly competitive with him. And she's never going to just accept his... It doesn't concern you or don't ask that question. If nothing, that's catnip for her. That's catnip crack for her to get more involved, not less involved.
0: And the same with Jessica. The the last episode out when he was trying to reassure that there was nothing wrong and, and Jessica tore apart the living room and found the one drop of blood. Based on the same thing of being stonewalled and, and figuring out that when her going to figure out that there was something really, really bad afoot. Right. So it's, 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 it's a dangerous tactic that Malcolm has.
2: I like Malcolm, but there is this pattern because it always seems to be Jessica or Ainsley that he's doing this move on. It almost comes off as to him being a little bit paternalistic, a little bit I know better than you ish. And I, I think at his heart, he genuinely thinks he's doing it for the greater good to protect them from themselves. But it always seems to backfire. And so I'd like to see a little bit of character growth in Malcolm that he actually tried the straight approach. See how that works out and see if you can't crack the problem. It it diminishes Jessica and Ainsley a bit. They're both very intelligent women. They're both very capable women. Look what they have accomplished. Look what Ainsley's accomplished in her career. Look what Jessica has managed to do keeping the family fortunes together for 20 years after being the wife of a convicted serial killer. Killer. so i think he underestimates them constantly only to the worse it never works out better when he keeps something from jessica and or ainsley and we're seeing it doing again here now i don't know that it would have worked out great if he had told ainsley what really happened but martin has a really interesting theory about that when he says that de- by not telling her the truth, he's denying her. Malcolm is denying Ainsley the ability to maybe be proud of herself. Or, or, But I think you could take his statement there and make it even larger that he's denying Ainsley the ability to actually understand who she is. For good or bad, we should all try to understand who we actually are. And Malcolm and his kind of paternalistic nature, I think, denies them that. I don't know. I don't know if that holds any water. I don't know what the reaction is to that, but
0: no it does because it feels like a condescending pat on the head like I know better and you don't need to know these dark horrors we can just move on and you don't have to concern yourself with that that's the vibe that I get from that and of course these women who you said and I agree they're intelligent they're curious they want to know they want to figure things out they want to understand the same that Malcolm does I just feel like well what with Ainsley you know now capable of and this being a theme throughout this episode is that she She's going to want to uncover no matter what, what it is that she can't remember and to to whose detriment. Right.
2: Right. And, and, And so if the case, when someone withholds something from us, the person will make it worse, potentially, or larger in their head than maybe it even is. When they know they're being lied to or information's being withheld from them, you create a circumstance where they begin maybe pulling in more information than's actually even germane to the topic. So when Ainsley becomes crazed at tracking down cases like this, you can see it all or she becomes obsessed with trying to get into Claremont to speak to martin It's all a result of i I wanted to know." Answers to specific question A. Malcolm, who I know has the answers, is keeping it from me. So now my queries are as to specific question A, B, C, D, and E, whether or not B, C, D, and E have anything to do with A. You know what I mean? It becomes a snowball effect where you're just making it all so much worse. No matter what the fallout is, the cover up is always worse. We learn that at Watergate. We, you know, we learn that constantly. If you're watching Your Honor right now on Showtime, which everyone should be watching, uh, Caroline and I are covering that po- that uh, that show uh, with Tales from Yaya podcast. The basis of that show is this guy. Son kills someone in a hit and run a very unfortunate and accidental hit and run and has done horrible, horrible things trying to cover it up and keep his son out of the crossfire for taking responsibility for the crime and has made it so much worse, so much worse, like irredeemable soul, like going to hell for all eternity level worse, trying to cover up the thing proving, again, the cover-up always so much worse than the crime. And so I feel, again, this is a great example of Malcolm being straight with Ainsley would have prevented this. Malcolm having been straight with Jessica off the bat instead of a fakak lie would have spared her having to destroy her room and then still finding evidence and still confronting him and and making her feel like she was crazy and forcing her to go to Martin. All those things spiraled off of Malcolm keeping information from these women in his life.
0: Right. And Ainsley ended up reading Martin's journal. So information without context, unfiltered, nobody to talk to about it. Right. So what are the repercussions of that going to be?
2: Yeah. And Ainsley is a classic example of someone who will read something, you know, 11 ways to, you know, drain the blood from someone and put that into practice without the context of why or when you should do those kinds of things. She's the perfect example of the kind of person who will only read the bolded sections of the textbook and not any of the context that supports it, you know, when she studies for the test. There's this idea brought up in this episode that Ainsley is competitive with Malcolm and it drives a lot of what she does and who she is. Martin kind of implies that Malcolm is maybe competitive with Ainsley. Is there something there to that, do you think? Is he actually trying to solve this murder quicker than his sister because he's competitive with her? Or is it really just concern for her safety and her reckless behavior that he's trying to solve the murder first. Is, is there any weight to the competitive
0: nature from his end? You know, I think this is what makes them so complex and, and why the writing in the show is so well done, because it's all of those. Siblings are competitive by nature. I get the feeling that There's like this age difference between them, but that it really hasn't stopped Ainsley throughout her life. And just like the flashback scene that we got at the very beginning that she was, you know, five years old and trying to keep up with her brother. So the fact that they are siblings and they are competitive is one nuance to this. Whereas, he's also trying to solve a murder because it, it, they've had two murders within two days. So like, obviously the clock is ticking because this is a motivated serial killer, but Ainsley now is also hell bent on solving it to get, you know, finishing first and Malcolm also knowing what he knows about wh- what, what Ains- Ainsley's journey has been that there's this really complicated dynamic here in this episode that, it's just hitting so many good notes for me that yes, he is competitive with her, but I don't think that that's the main driving force. I think he's that he's starting to see her unravel. There's these tendencies that are coming out and he's seeing it and he's like, I need to, I need to figure this out so that she's just,
2: she stops. It brings me to a question I had when I was watching this episode at the end scene with Rachel in the murder lair when eight, when Malcolm is trying to talk Rachel down and he sees Ainsley come up over her shoulder and in, a, in a positioning that was too, too reminiscent of Ainsley behind Endicott. He says essentially he starts saying, you know, stop. There's another way. Don't do this. Stop. There's another way. I, I, you know, is he talking to Rachel there or is he actually talking to Ainsley afraid of what she may do? to, quote-unquote, stop Rachel the same way that she stopped Endicott. My gut is actually that he's talking to Ainsley there with the panic. Same. The, the, his eyes his eyes widened, and, and his voice is much more panicked than if he was talking to Rachel. So,
0: Yes, that, that was the vibe I was getting 100% that that monologue was for Ainsley, that there is another way, you don't have to do this, because she not only, you know, faked being roofied she also came prepared with her tried and true weapon of choice she had a knife so it was just it was a very a very heartfelt plea from malcolm i felt the mania really coming out of his voice there he was really pleading with ainsley not rachel
2: which is you know really revealing in its own right about who he thinks his sister is martin malcolm jessica they all reveal inadvertently and accidentally their true feelings about how terrified they really all are of Ainsley to some degree and, and worry about what she's capable of. I, I think the nightmare that Jessica has at the start of the episode is perfect. You know, um, encapsulation of that, of all the things that she might be dreaming about. She's dreaming about at this time where Ainsley trapped herself in a grandfather clock just to beat Malcolm at a game of hide and seek.
0: And she was five. So there's like some sophisticated reasoning that's going on there.
2: Yeah, no, no, for sure, for sure.
0: So do we think that Malcolm and his breakdown of Miss Windsor's failures in decorum, was this classic Malcolm? Is he getting a little bit of his groove back, do you think?
2: I love this. We haven't seen Malcolm act like this in quite a while, you know, catching her when she when she refuses to give him entry, you know, when Ainsley's up in her tea room he says you're lying she stops and he begins lifting off all the reasons i love the idea that malcolm through osmosis of his sister having attended etiquette school is versed on all of the decorum that mrs windsor is breaking by covering up a larger indiscretion and break with decorum lying uh you know turning her back you know leaving the scene first versus her guest all of the things he just kind of using nails her.
0: a contraction
2: <laughs> because you are who you are. Uh, you know, it was great. This was, I mean, this was Tom Paine at his most Malcolmist, just throwing people's behaviors back in their face in an un- incontrovertible way. It was really delicious to see him in this kind of form because we really haven't seen him. We had a little bit of flutter of this when he's speed profiling the women of Ward Z last week. But it's been missing a lot from this season. This kind of Malcolm profiling on his feet with his his lightning quick uh, Intellect and and mind and tongue all kind of working at the same speed.
0: Yeah, I agree. I was absolutely relishing the dressing down that he was giving her as rapid fire as he possibly could. I was like, "Yes, he's back."
2: <laughs> I want to shift to Martin. There was some talk in the Facebook groups, and there was some talk uh, on social media also. Uh, About Martin yelling at Malcolm last episode and how his accents came through at the height of his anger. And you and I talked about this. We we both really like this idea that Martin loses his eloquence when he gets upset like all people do or, or at mm-hmm. least most people do if you've worked hard to lose your accent when you get excited either in a happy way or an angry way your natural tongue tends to come back and so there was some there was some discussion about whether or not michael sheen's welsh accent was bleeding through now my understanding is and i've heard like i actually just heard an interview with matthew reese who's also welsh Mm -hmm. there those accents are very impenetrable to me and very hard to make out, especially when the person is excited or speaking quickly. I don't have an ear for the Welsh accent. That's not the accent I'm hearing Martin Martin Whitley break into when he gets excited. To me, it's very much a Queens, Brooklyn, Long Island accent where the consonants all come up and mother becomes mother. mother. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it, that's, that's very much the, the people you and I grew up with.
0: Like your mother is very South Bronx. <laughs>
2: right. Well, that, I mean, yes, that, that's a whole yeah. other dialect. But it's a it's a very Queens, Brooklyn, Long Island thing. Absolutely. You know, the, the, yeah, you're breaking your mother's heart, you know, the, that whole thing. And, and there's a little bit more of that tonight. When he says fakakta, uh, I, I warned listeners a couple of episodes ago that you'll hear me say ajuda from time to time, which is New York for heartburn.
0: You're giving me Ajita, You're, you're giving
2: me You got to <laughs> knock this off. You, your playing fakakta. Fakakta is like a Yiddish word. But it's one of those. But it's beyond that, though. It's it's a New York word. It's a New York ism. And so when he comes out with Fakakta, this all and there was a little bit of the a sound instead of the ending consonant sound in his speech tonight. That's all Martin Whitley being a New Yorker, not Michael Sheen breaking his accent and letting his Welsh natural Welsh accent come through. I think that would sound very, very different if he was using his Welsh accent as he gets excited and loses the eloquence.
0: I heard none of the Welsh coming through. I mean, the Welsh accent is very it's very different than a British accent an Irish accent. Like it's like a kind of a cross between like the Scottish, the British. It's, it's a it's a very distinctive accent. So I got none of that. And I engaged yeah. in some of these discussions on the Facebook group because I was just like he sounded like like me sounded yeah. like people I grew up with. Yeah, and... where water
2: becomes water. Water. Water, you know? that's a classic example. Like Martin in that scene would be like, you drowned your mother in water. Like right. there would be no R, it would just be, sh- be water. Like, and so it's very consistent with that kind of thing. And so the use of fakakta, he's not Yiddish, he's not Jewish of any kind of form or form. But New Yorkers use Yiddish words like they use Italian words all the time. People say mushugana all the time.
0: Like uh, no. schmuck and spiel. Yeah. Schmuck yeah,
2: yeah I need a schmear yeah she even, schmusky, like glitch. Oh, right.
0: even right. glitch is like a Yiddish word yeah plots you know plots to plots over here you know
2: yeah I'm, I'm all of that those are all New York those are all Yiddish words that have been co-opted into New yorkisms that you hear in in conversation i I heard growing up fakakta, no one in my house is Jewish no one in my house speaks Yiddish I heard fakakta my entire life growing up in my house
0: yes same my entire life. And, you know, there's a great skit from the 90s with Mike Myers, and he does Coffee Talk with Linda Richman, right? Sure. That's all of that, you know. Yeah. That, talk that amongst dr- yourselves. Right. But, like, a lot of those Yiddishisms that would come in, but it's very fluent in New Yorkers, and I feel like them bringing in a word like fakakta, it really, like, lends, like, a degree of authenticity to, like, Martin being, a, like, a bred New Yorker. It really
2: does. As, as a lifelong New Yorker who has spent years trying to lose most of his Accent Or speak mostly without an accent. I really appreciate all of that character development with Martin. And so it's only because it came up post post us talking about it on this on this podcast. And we saw a discussion of it elsewhere. I, and then hearing Fakakta tonight, it was just like, we, we got to address this because it's such a it's such a region. I think everyone has regionalisms. New York has a very rich complex co-opted vocabulary that you can just kind of grow up with as part of your upbringing when you're here.
0: And it's, it's like the melting pot nature of it. Like, like you and I are not Jewish, but yet these words have absolutely permeated our vernacular yeah
2: yeah for sure for sure
0: and it sounds natural like when he said fakak i was like yes (laughs) like that is some deep writing right there it doesn't
2: even make me blink it doesn't even make me blink when i hear him say that because i believe him as kind of a really born and bred new yorker so let me ask you this sheila is there anything more chilling than hearing martin whitley say like he does at the end of this episode there's nothing i won't do to save my
0: family with the long gaze that came after it oh my god my spine was like hello (laughs) it was very chilling to hear that very Um,
2: very disturbing and and only hints i mean we've we've put on ice currently this whole idea of him trying to get out of claremont it's been it's been kind of put on hold with everything that happened in group therapy the last couple of episodes but i don't think we're done with that storyline he's still holding on to two of the three you know golden tickets to get out of the out of claremont
0: And he still has the Shiv, and he still has, you know, the Mr. David plan as his last out, because he's got two out of the three, and Mr. David has the third. So, like, that's still brewing in the back of my mind, and he's getting more and more compelling reasons why he needs to be busted out. So I'm getting a little nervous
2: i'm getting excited it's a long season, folks, and I you know I think you know we talked about the fact that we're already up to episode five, but we're gonna be here for a while in season two. You know we really haven't gotten the the serial killer of the season aspect yet and which is pretty consistent with season one. you know the junkyard killer gave way to what eventually being Endicott, but that was really the middle portion of the season that really picked up between episodes, say, seven, eight, nine through the end of the season, you mm-hmm. know? So I, I think we're still in the settling in phase and everyone's still catching their footing on where we are. So, so I think we're still in for quite a ride. And I think Martin getting out of Claremont or the idea of Martin getting out of Claremont is still, is still left mostly ripe yet to be picked, that, that, that plot line. So.
0: Yeah, it's still on the table. So, Mike, do you think if Jessica were to take Ainsley away like a uh, a rehab for murderers, do you think Martin would be as upset as he would if he lost contact with Malcolm?
2: Martin is only interested in Ainsley now because of her work with Endicott and the, the fact that I think he sees her as teeter-tottering on the threshold of, you know, walking down the path of darkness or running away from it like Malcolm tried to for so many years uh, and continues to try to. So I think that's the only reason he's kind of interested in Ainsley now. Prior to any of this, and think back to season one, he only really got excited for Ainsley and her true proud papa moment, as he's, as he's fond of saying, when she does something particularly murderous or blood-lusty or super- Cutthroaty. And and she does plenty of it. I mean, she's super reckless uh in so many ways, and she takes so many risks in so many ways, and I think Martin really likes those things. But when you get down to it, he really has put all of his eggs in Malcolm's basket. I don't think anyone being taken away from him would ever disturb him as much as Malcolm being taken away from him would. I think he jealously guards a, a jessica and ainsley especially when it's against someone like gill i think his hackles and his machismo and his and his jealousy comes to the surface but deep-seated love and need to, like the need where it's almost uh an addiction i think really only runs as deep as malcolm
0: yeah, that's the feeling that I get too. Is that Malcolm is the one that he's he's put his uh, his laser sights on, and that's that's his legacy. I feel.
2: Yeah, in a lot of ways, I think he sees him as his legacy, as the continuation of his as his not only namesake, which is funny because he's the one who doesn't have his namesake, but as like the genetic line. But there is this there is this idea that Ainsley maybe also carries you know his skill set though to hear it from his own mouth he seems to identify ainsley more as uh jessica's daughter, jessica's daughter yes not not so much his as for as much as you know she can be my girl you know it, yeah it was telling that he sees that she has more qualities that jessica possesses than he says that he possesses which is an interesting study which is one of the things i'm definitely interested in in asking uh halston about so This is the second week in a row that Jessica has turned to Martin for help with the kids. Something that I think maybe we only saw once, maybe twice the entirety of season one, Jessica voluntarily talking to Martin about something. Now we've seen it twice in a a row. She even goes on to say that she needs a partner in Martin. She needs him to be her partner in, in helping the kids not get lost and get swallowed up by the media, by themselves, by their own impulses, by their own darkness. That's, huge that's huge what can what does that mean are 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 these two going to become a team is martin going to work above board with jessica how does that work how
0: does it work with gil what do you think There's a lot to unpack there the fact that she's partnering with martin i feel is desperation on her part because she's done what she can up until this point but now the waters are getting deeper and she's not She's not able to navigate this the way that she has in the past because things are getting tense. They're, the, the, the the stakes are getting elevated, not to be like cliche, but I, I mean, you know, now we literally have a murder that has been covered up and now she knows about it and, and the conflict. What do I do with that information? Both of my children will be implicated because one did it and one covered it up. There's just a lot going on and I feel that she's just desperate and she has nobody else that she can turn to because a Martin already knows B he's already in uh, an asylum for the rest of his life so it's not like he can have his sentence added to if he's an accessory to murder. They were married they there's a trust there you know even if it has been eroded over 20 plus years and the fact that he's a serial killer but you know you could step back into that that mindset of like well this is a person who i did share my deepest darkest secrets with and then maybe we can use the that that power for good again uh even if it is just targeted so i feel that this is her her cry for help and the fact that martin kind of meets her meets her there in the middle going, there's nothing I wouldn't do for my family. He's on board because there's just a lot going on between them subconsciously. That dream that he had the other episode, There's just a lot going on. So, um, yeah, it's just it was an exciting kind of a prospect, these two teaming up.
2: You say the word desperation, and I think that's definitely a bit there. But you also, I think, were right, uh, hitting the nail on the head by saying that they were married. There was love there. There was attraction there. She, even in her plea to him tonight, says, be the man I fell in love with, almost like begging him to revert to the idealistic version of him that she probably holds in her head when she wants to have a happy memory of him. You know, there was a time when he wasn't a serial killer, when he wasn't the surgeon. He was just, you know, Dr. Martin Whitley, her loving husband and father of her children, that was a time that exists and is in her memory. And so I think it is a little bit of nostalgia, a little bit of the hope that he can become the man again that she fell in love with. I don't know that that's going to happen. I think she's stuck with the Martin that exists now, not the Martin from pre-1999, 1998, and that glorious dark beard of his that we got to (laughs) see tonight. Uh, You know, so I I think it's a little bit of idealistic dreaming, but it's also extremely important, I think, to the ongoing development of their two characters that she's even broaching this idea of partnership. That's the next level shit for Jessica. So there's a part of me that wonders if there isn't some attraction still on her part, that she would be willing to be uh, a quote unquote partner with him and trying to save the kids. It's shocking to me that she thinks that they would even be on the same page in saving the kids. She's taking for granted this idea that Martin doesn't want the two kids to become serial killers. And I'm right, not convinced of that cell, at all.
0: Like, and be, like they'll all share the cell, you know?
2: And he's talking about, you know, telling Ainsley that she killed Endicott. She may be proud of herself. He's looking to get her a participation trophy for the bloodlust, you know? And so <laughs> I, I, think, I think Jessica's taking a lot of assumptions here, but I, I'm in for it, though, especially because it plays great with Gil. You know, there was this whole aspect here where he's super annoyed with Jessica tonight when he finds out that she went to visit martin is that jealousy on gill's part is that just her him being mad that she involved martin in a a case does it speak to gill as he sees himself really as the real father figure for malcolm and for ainsley i don't know i i I think i think there's a lot there what what was your take on gill tonight and his reaction to jessica that scene
0: I definitely got jealousy from him. I I also was excited that he opened the door back up for for Gilsica, for the return of Gilsica, with saying, well, you know, you were right on time for me, uh, even if she missed Ainsley. Because he was very stonewalled. He was very stoic, very kind of mean to jessica the last time out it's it's not okay for you to just want to partner with me whenever it's convenient for you you told me to get out basically to get out of your life so i think in having had to deal with martin the last time out it it softened gail i think it reminded him that you know she is the polar opposite to martin and he, he does he does have an attraction for jessica so i'm excited that he did open the door again and he let his jealousy kind of ebb and flow right so it happened and he he walked back from it i I think he's just appalled at the notion that she just went to go see him and he wants to be that level of Trustworthiness, I think, in her life, but he's got no idea what the content is. So, um,
2: well, yeah, again, and he's really acting from behind the eight ball here. He has no idea the level of nonsense and shenanigans that's happening in the Whitley family right now because he's been kept on the outside. The only one Malcolm can conveniently or successfully hide stuff from is Gil, but not even really, right? Because Jessica and Malcolm in tandem were separately, are subconsciously giving off vibes to Gil it seems that something is amiss something is amiss with malcolm with ainsley and and with jessica i'm curious do you think that that's him just being a good cop picking up subtle micro expressions or does that speak to the fact that gill was uh, essentially the de facto parent for malcolm and ainsley for 20 years
0: well, I think one skill set lends itself to the other. So the fact that he has this long-standing familiarity with this family and with the quirks that these people go through, and also the fact that he is the head detective for major crimes for New York City is no small feat. So he has to be very astute. He has to be able to pick up on the uh, the undercards, the things that aren't said, the body language, the, um, the the weird ticks thing that come out, but the fact that he's he says to jessica he goes i don't know what's going on i've never seen her ainsley like that and you and malcolm are amped to 11 he knows that there's something big going on but he can't put his finger on it but jessica also didn't help the situation by saying you know was ainsley involved for me that was like a bigger tip off that he's going to be going like okay malcolm's been odd now ainsley's odd and what what does jessica fear that ainsley is involved with
2: to be fair, odd-er. Malcolm is being odd-er. Angel is
0: yeah. being odd-er. All of this fucking take...
2: Whitleys, they're all off kilter. At like, but this... I was
0: just taking Malcolm sort of like at his face and now he's just being odd yeah. for Malcolm.
2: I mean, Gil can say they're amped to 11, but these motherfuckers all start at nine and a half not on their good days. On their calm Prozac days, they start at nine and a half. So yeah. I don't know even what amped up to 11 means. That sounds that sounds like a Dreson for Loco, uh, which we're going to get to <laughs> after our interview with Halston Sage coming up in a minute here when we hit adresa's corner but yeah i I, you know it's gonna be interesting gill didn't get to be the head of major crimes he didn't get to be the detective he is by just letting things go and the odder that this whitley gang all continue to act the more he's going to start digging and the same way ainsley when she can't get an answer from malcolm just doesn't give up she goes around him and circumvents him i don't think it's long before gill starts using alternative ways to try and get the answers he's looking for to get to the bottom of why these guys are all acting so so strange and can be tracked easily back to a specific point in time the same way Jessica was able to track it all the way back to Endicott's murder and disappearance the rug you know the rug being destroyed on that same night Gil I mean, yes, he was recovering from his his wound at the time, and it was in rehab at the time. After that, or for the immediate aftermath, he's gonna be able to do the math. It's these guys aren't master liars for as much killing and death as they're all involved in, and I think the cards are all gonna kind of the card house is gonna come crumbling down around them once Gil actually starts to push.
0: I have just one observation. So Please. the fla- so the flashback scene that happened at the very beginning of the episode, when Martin turns to look at the clock, he's like the chime is off. There's behind him there is a a portrait painting, and dude, like this guy, whoever this is, it looks like Martin Whitley from you know like basically like him in a portrait painting. It's got a big you know he's got a big black bushy beard black, bushy hair. So it was just an observation. I'd seen it a couple of episodes ago when Gil had come to the house and Jessica was like, this isn't a good time. And I saw it in the foyer and I was like, oh. When I saw this episode, I was like, oh, that's definitely like
2: a Martin Whitley lookalike. Well, nice little eye for detail. You know, it's interesting. We hear from the Milton, we hear about the Milton family from time to time. I'm curious what the pedigree is on the Whitleys and how back in history they go. Or is Martin the first, you know, notable Whitley? Um, So it'd be interesting to hear uh, about his side of the family. And is he the first serial killer in the Whitley family? You know, did did the blood go bad at his line on the family tree? Is there, you know, maybe the way they're doing a Yellowstone 1883, maybe we can get, you know, the Whitleys 1957, you know, I don't know. (laughs) that might be
0: interesting a martin origin story i would be definitely down for
2: oh my god all you have to do if anyone watched good omens all you have to do to de-age michael sheen or martin whitley is to shave his beard and it shaves
0: oh and then you have a baby face
2: 25 years off of martin's age without any other work
0: right because they already did a fantastic job you know de-aging malcolm
2: all right guys that takes us to the end of our episode discussing bad manners episode five of season two i hope you stick around now because we're gonna have our exclusive interview with halston sage who Please, Ainsley Whitley afterwards stick around because we're going to have a drissa's corner and we're going to wrap up and say thank you and goodbye so now stay tuned is our interview with Halston Sage oh man we're so excited joining us tonight on the surgeon files for her own very very special Ainsley episode is Ainsley Whitley herself Halston Sage Halston thank you so much for coming out tonight
1: Thanks for having me, guys.
2: We are huge fans of yours here. I I mean, I know personally, I've been aware of you and following your career since Neighbors, like way back when now, it seems. You came really onto our radar with the Orville. We were big fans of the show and big fans of yours. Talk to us a little bit about moving from that kind of sci-fi dramedy to them being cast as Ainsley in Prodigal Son. What was the audition process like? The kind of change in type of show it was?
1: Well, first of all, thank you so much
2: for for
1: being so loyal. (laughs) But yeah, I think something I've really enjoyed in terms of my careers, I've just had the ability to dabble in these different genres, which has been really fun and an incredible experience because each project has been so different you know, I really love comedy, which is why I find it hilarious that I'm on a very serious drama about serial killers. Although there are some really fun, funny moments that happen on Prodigal Son. And we do tend to pick out those moments too. We, we those. <laughs> The writers write a very fine line between drama and comedy, but it's been an amazing experience to get a firsthand account working with different types of actors in different types of environments and, you know, something on Neighbors, which you'll do a scripted version of a scene and then you'll have the freedom to sort of improv a couple different versions of the situation, which is so much fun and challenging in a completely different way than a show like Orville when the characters are kind of living in this world that we've invented so anything really goes and then to transition on to prodigal son it's kind of this nice combination of the different worlds and minus the aliens of course sure sure, um it's been fun it's been it's been great and i feel very lucky that regardless of the genre i've worked with such talented actors that I've learned so much from each set.
2: Was there something particularly about Ainsley? Like if you could think back way back when, when you first found out about the part and you were getting ready to do an audition, was there something about the part or the show that really particularly drew your eye to it? Because this is a big departure from the Orville. It is a big departure from the work at Nickelodeon way back when and Neighbor, you know, like your kind of career. This is this is something really kind of a new path, work-wise or, or genre-wise anyway.
1: It's a good question. There were a couple of things about the prodigal son script that I just really fell in love with. Obviously, I really connected with Ainsley and her very strong relationship to her brother. I didn't connect so much to her experience being the daughter of a serial killer, but I was so fascinated by that character idea of someone who wakes up in the morning knowing knowing that she shares blood with someone who has the capacity to kill people. I just thought was such a fascinating reality and so complicated.
0: What
2: a Scoopy would have had just now had you been like, that was what I mainly (laughs) identified with. It was, you know.
1: Right. My, yeah, wait, I'm, in, so, I'm sorry to disappoint you. I'm <laughs> so sorry. Okay.
2: That's all
1: right. <laughs> it's, it's been just a great experience on the show. And it's, like I said, I think it was also the fact that Ainsley was a journalist, I thought could be kind of a fun, new experience. I was on my high school newspaper staff <laughs> growing up, and I was always very interested in journalism. So I think playing Ainsley gave me the opportunity to kind of get the best of both worlds.
0: (laughs) Last April, you had an essay about life in COVID times. It was in Variety. I read it just recently, and it brought me back to March in an instant. It was so moving. It was so powerful. And it was really beautiful to, to kind of revisit it in hindsight, in a way. But you had a line. You said, I'm officially afraid of my own hands. And that just caught me just right in the fields. So almost a year on, I mean like I'm not ready for it to be March again, but now that we're almost a year on from you wow. having written that, how has your view of this new life changed? I'm actually really glad you asked that question
1: because I think when I wrote that, I was coming from a place of the unknown. Like at that point no one really knew anything and we still don't know so much, but especially back in March, I was just coming from living in new york city which is one of the most densely populated cities in the country maybe even the world and i was i was definitely adjusting i think to to life as as we knew it and kind of what it was becoming and now i think we've all found a way to make ourselves more comfortable than we were back March of 2020. And we found different ways to cope. And we've found ways that we can be helpful so we don't feel as helpless. And we've learned what we can do to protect ourselves. And And back then, we didn't really know any of that. We just knew that there was this mysterious virus and it was it was killing people. And it was a really scary, sad thing. And I think for me, I just felt so it was this, like, loss of control. And it was so sad to watch the news and to see this loss of life and all this pain that people are, were and are going through. I think now I look back on it with more perspective, and you still feel all of the same emotions, but we can kind of see a light at the end of the tunnel, which I think is very reassuring. And, and science has taught us so much, and the medicine has evolved so quickly. Which I think we're also grateful for. So I feel definitely less scared of my my hands. <laughs> um, <laughs> and,
2: and it's a little easier to find Purell. There's a great line in there how you're going to you know four different Dwayne Reed's looking for Purell and you couldn't find it. Right, yeah. right,
1: right, exactly. So I think I think everyone has kind of found themselves back in a more controlled environment than yes. we were back in March. Which. Definitely puts everyone at ease
2: we talked to michael potts last week on the surgeon files and it was an interesting perspective because him coming in as a guest star for a couple episodes you know it's a it's a different feel it's not his show it's not his people necessarily so he kind of comes in and with the covid protocols has his experience how was it for you not only getting the call from you know chris and sam saying we're on we're going to be back in production but then actually getting back to set is i'm sure i'm sure it's different but is it different and also kind of the same like what was it like getting back to work under like the new kind of regime and stuff
1: i have never been more grateful to be working and i think i have a whole new appreciation for being on set after having almost the entire year off from just sheltering in place and i think We were so fortunate that our studio and our network, you know, found very safe ways to get us up and running again. And I think what really helped our show, especially was the fact that we had had that first season and we did have this history with our cast and our crew that we could rebound with and we could fall back into place with everyone that we knew without meeting new people while their faces were, you know, covered up in, in PPE. So The timing for us worked out really well, and we're very fortunate that we've been able to almost complete a whole nother season amidst the pandemic.
2: Let's actually get into the show, and and specifically, let's get into tonight's episode, Bad Manners. We got to see Ainsley's competitive side with Malcolm tonight in a way that the show has hinted at and showed us a little bit, but I don't Mm. know that it's ever been so bold underlined as... As Ainsley was tonight. I mean, she was really cranked up to 11 to use Gil's word. He said am- amped up to 11. <laughs> is is her, the competitiveness really what's driving her? Do you think in getting inside her head? Or is it more related to her memories that she knows aren't there that should be there? You know, what's what's really driving Ainsley right now?
1: I think what's driving Ainsley is this sense of finally understanding what it what it means to be the daughter of a serial killer and how it has affected her. And the whole first season really explored the way Malcolm was affected by their childhood. But we just started to get a peek into how it may have affected Ainsley. And to her, she's finally getting this taste that her brother has had for not so much figuring out who the serial killer is, but so why they did it. And I think for them as siblings, knowing what they've gone through, it's, almost therapeutic to try to understand how their father could do something and how someone could go down that road. And so we've seen it with Malcolm. And and in this episode, you kind of get to see Ainsley go on that same journey.
0: There's a scene in tonight's episode where Martin tells Malcolm that he sees Ainsley as more Jessica-like, that she's got the same ambition and the same drive. Is Ainsley's ambition a bad thing?
1: I think Ainsley's coming from a good place, but I think in this particular episode she she gets a little bit lost in the excitement of the murder mystery and she needed to really take a step back and realize that they're dealing with the loss of human life. And, you know, she kind of takes the humanity out of it all and and sees it more as a game of who could solve the murder first and i think that's what really worries malcolm is that she's not considering the emotion and you know the heartbreak that really goes into what the job that they're actually doing
2: at filming a uh, commercial promo for the network it, while while, <laughs> while your ex-classmate is actually still at the death table it's, right it's a little next level for you know, everyone i think
0: stands <laughs>
1: nice you know <laughs> i think you're completely fair in saying that and i I,
0: i'd worry about the person who disagrees with you um so yeah Yeah, we were asking like maybe if this is you know her stepping over the line to reckless because she has an intimate knowledge of the school and the classmates and the people being affected like is is she is she headed towards reckless do you think i think she definitely
1: is headed down a very very reckless path and and that is alarming to malcolm and he's kind of had to take over as the sibling who's in control and in charge the well-adjusted whitley (laughs) exactly yeah and and he takes on this new responsibility that ainsley really was carrying for the whole first season Mm -hmm. there's a great through line though
2: but from martin down to ainsley and malcolm this this light in their eyes a little bit of lilt in their voice when there's a murder to be had i mean how many times we've seen malcolm be pacing until he gets a new case a new murder to go solve Mm. and ainsley definitely has a bit of that i think the problem is and i think maybe a part of where Malcolm comes from is that she doesn't maybe have the training to deal with it Malcolm went through the FBI and and through his work his professional work has kind of gained the skills to balance out the investigation side of it whereas Ainsley is just unbridled enthusiasm in a lot of ways but there is definitely a Whitley trait there that she seems to have which is always interesting for you guys to play with when you first got the role how much of the backstory do you think uh, did you have did you end up creating a lot of it did sam and chris kind of have it on the page for you what was it like kind of getting to know ainsley the character in season one
1: i think we're still getting to know her on a weekly basis but from the pilot we really didn't know much and again the whole first season was more focused on we knew a lot about her in the present. We knew that she was trying to be a successful journalist and separate herself from her family name and, you know, kind of bring them into a more positive light. But we didn't really know why she was so hyper-focused on her job and on taking care of her brother and taking care of her mom. You know, Sam and Chris have been amazing. And anytime I have a question about anything, they've been able to kind of clarify it on the side, whether it was in the script or not. I did always kind of know, just from being a human, that no one is really as perfect as they seem. And the fact that Ainsley was trying so hard to create this perception about herself that was so distinctly different from her brother and her father, it was always a little suspect to me. So I was really looking forward to the day we would get to understand the more complicated side of her and the writers really,
0: really,
1: <laughs> really brought it on <laughs> for the <laughs> okay. finale for season two, which is. Was- been so much fun as an actor.
2: I don't know how much of the social media or if you're if you read any of the fan pages about Ainsley, but literally every episode after a certain point, every episode in season one, there was always a string of fan theories. Be we like, oh girl, next week is Ains- <laughs> Ainsley's gonna be knee deep in blood. Like you know, she got that look in her <laughs> eye, and then and then you know because there was there were always those kinds Funny. of fascinations uh, because she seemed so fascinated by the surgeon this this kind of father she didn't really know. You know, I think a lot of people look to when her boyfriend gets stabbed in in Claremont and she picks up the camera to start filming the surgery mm-hmm. that her father does that Martin does on the boyfriend mm-hmm. instead of being worried or whatever you know her first her first thing is let's get it on film and you know there's a little lack of you know empathy and sympathy there in that scene for her so I think everyone was kind of waiting for that switch to hit but even still even after Endicott in the season finale she's not fully broke bad or broke surgeon yet um and and so for us i think watching it's kind of the slow evolution i'm curious i'm curious when you pick up a script if if you feel like every week you get like a little bit further down the path when you read about her like how does it feel to you to kind of watch this evolution of her character from where she started
1: it's exciting and i think it's obviously such a gift to play such such a layered person. And I'm very appreciative of the writers for giving me that opportunity. And it's been very satisfying for me just to finally know the ways in which Ainsley's been affected by growing up as the daughter of a serial killer. And it's actually, it's really fun because like you said, uh, Michael has created this really, really charming, hilarious version of a serial killer that is almost So likable that you start to question your own character (laughs) when you're watching him. And that's been very fun to start to play into as an actor. Like he's just given us so much and such little details of that enthusiasm and that excitement that we've been able to kind of put into our own performances. So I was glad to be invited to that party.
0: (laughs) We we definitely live for Martin's quips (laughs) that he brings each episode. Same. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, oh, good, good. I'm glad. So Ainsley and Jessica have a dynamic and complicated relationship. And in season one, we saw them oftentimes butting heads. This season, it seems like she's like Ainsley's taking a much softer approach with Jessica. You know, she overhears that they, that, the the conversation with Gil and Jessica that the family's cursed and that, you know, Ainsley admits that she might be broken too. So Mm -hmm. will there be more exploration of this mother-daughter relationship in season two, especially now knowing that Jessica knows what Ainsley has done?
1: (laughs) that's a good question and <laughs> I,
0: I, I think I realize it might be hard to answer without giving away the plot but
1: it's hard to answer without giving away the plot yeah, <laughs> yeah, she's doing, doing the, the mental doing the
2: gymnastics mental gymnastics be like well if I say this who <laughs> right. comes, who's at my door yelling at me kind of thing
1: what I can say is the, that I think the roles have really flipped in this season of you know the caretaker and the family and Ainsley has kind of forfeited that role and given it up to Malcolm and realized that she, you know, there actually is a really touching scene at the end of Tuesday's episode that I just, I really enjoyed. And I thought was kind of a long time coming where Malcolm and Ainsley are talking about, you know, their relationship and she just kind of tells him, you know, I'm, I'm allowed to be a little messed up too. I, I I'm also the child of a serial killer and it has affected me even though I've tried to hide it for so long. And in this season, you know, you've really, she's just been more, more vulnerable in that way. And because of that, I think it's easier to, to relate to Jessica more than when she was just this perfectly put together journalist running around New York and dealing with kind of a a dramatic mother and a broken brother. Um, And now she can kind of relate to their, their their sadness and their trauma more than than she could in season one.
0: Yeah, we tend to give uh, Jessica a lot of props for being a good mom despite the labels oh i'm glad you do yeah because she <laughs> kept everybody together as much as she could you know in the aftermath of, of martin's arrest and and whatnot so yeah so no we we're we're, uh, we're big jessica fans here too okay good i <laughs> i love to hear it
2: we're actually big fans of the whole whitley family yeah, really? even even Celia killer dad because as a father he's an inter- he's an interesting kind of complex father who is oddly doting on his kids but it does tend to be only really when they're showing signs of being in the family business. You know, this is one of our <laughs> one of our recurring profiles. I love about-
1: that, the family business. Well,
2: you know, he he never seemed I'm like a- to steal
0: that. Oh, please
2: do. Ains- please do. Ainsley is that's never funny. Ainsley often never seems as interesting to Martin as when she's maybe slitting throats or, you know, getting her hands literally dirty. And it, that's an interesting thing about Martin, I think, as a dad and, and the way they've crafted that character. The the idea that I love all my kids. There's nothing I wouldn't do for my family, but I like them better if they're maybe killing people.
1: (laughs) He's attracted to their um, relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And the kind of mystery of murdering and the magic behind it, which is very, very interesting.
2: Well, I mean, he's got a great he's got a great line about Ainsley in this episode. He makes the point to Malcolm that had Malcolm been more upfront with her or with Ainsley, that maybe she'd be able to have the opportunity to be proud of herself for what she did. You know, and Dukat was a bad guy and maybe Mm. needed putting down and, and, you know, Ainsley acted in a way that protected her brother in a moment and at large protected her family. And, uh, you know, it's an interesting point of view you know, to take. Uh, so I don't know. I, will say, I guess we have to see how that plays out.
1: <laughs> I agree with you, though. I think, you know, there is that point of view and, and, and that perspective on the situation where she, I don't know that there's a lot I wouldn't do to protect my family. I don't know if that's smart to say that on a public podcast, but, you know, I think I that's what I related to most about, um, like I said earlier, Ainsley, and, and this kind of fierce loyalty to her family, despite their reputation. And, and yeah, he has a point. So I guess, I guess we'll have to find out.
2: This season's been fun for us. Yeah, the, the whole season, the whole show seems really at like a neck in like its next gear because I think we know these characters, and so we're able to. The writers are being able to play with them more, and the directors and and the actors are able to play with the characters more. Getting to see Malcolm a couple episodes ago back at his old boarding school, and tonight we get to see Ainsley kind of revisit mm-hmm. the winter school for etiquette that made her. I was watching it, and I was curious if that was any kind of experience you could identify with the the idea of there's a great line in there where rachel the he the assistant quote unquote assistant is told like dolls reflect the best of women silence mm-hmm. and patient as girls should be what is it like when you get that script and be like this is where ainsley comes from to say <laughs> nothing of their parents experience of like sending their kids to these kinds of schools but uh, what was it like uh, playing someone who came from a finishing school as it were
1: that's actually a great question it says a lot about You know, Ainsley, I think she is. She probably she took a lot of good from that, just in the sense of her confidence and her ability to kind of carry her family in a way um, that no twenty something year old should really have to do. We've always known that the Whitleys have come from this very upper side, prim and proper background, and that the new generation has maybe veered in a different direction and it's like anything from our childhood. It's like, you take a little bit of it, you take what you want and you leave the rest, In the past.
2: (laughs) It's true. It's true. There's a failure to adapt there. And I I think ultimately that's what brings down, you know, Sarah Windsor in this episode. Yeah. She's a prisoner of her own inability to move on.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right.
2: When you say things like uh, Upper East Side, it makes my New Yorker heart feel very (laughs) warmed. To, to use the locale and the lingo so casually
1: oh thank you
0: I, very, I, I've very really, authentic very authentic i yeah.
1: really enjoyed living in new york i have to say even in these tough times to see the city kind of come together and everyone really respectfully take care of each other has been a completely different experience than living in the old new york that we all knew and loved but equally as interesting and rewarding in a lot of ways.
0: So Mike and I are actually, we were both born and raised in, in Queens in New York City. So oh, are you guys, where are you now? I've, I've been home since March 12th. Right, so. there you go. <laughs> haven't we all (laughs) yeah basically but no it's just like the fact that you have like the lingo and then the the locales down it just it does give like a certain level of you know like you're now one of us is really what it comes Uh, down to
1: (laughs) that's the ultimate compliment i really take i will take that to heart
0: thank you (laughs) oh see i'm I'm getting faster with the embroidery on the pod house clubhouse jacket now for you oh good is it done yet just about just about
2: hot off the presses uh we actually gave you a nice shout out actually you had one of our lines or one of our line deliveries of the week last week though not an Ainsley episode per se you gave this yes in Malcolm's apartment <sighs> when you got to when you found out you were getting to go on this case that was Thank so you. so good it was Thank uh yeah
1: that was actually improv that was just me because <laughs> we had a little bit of time you know before they called cut and I was just like well she'd be excited and he's kind of finished wrapping up this phone call. And I appreciate you noticing.
0: Thank you. Oh, yeah, future. we spent a lot of time talking about it. We were Thank just like, you. that. was just like the perfect delivery of a line. It was everything that Ainsley <laughs> wanted in that moment. Yes. Thank you. You're welcome. How are you most like Ainsley? And how do you differ from her?
1: Well, um, the murder.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's how well, we're both one. alike.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I think... Uh, you know, like we've sort of talked about, I just feel so connected to my family and so protective of them. And I really think that's at the heart of Ainsley's character is she's just trying to survive not only for herself, but for her family and their legacy. And and obviously it's harder to relate to her exact circumstance, but everyone wants to be strong for their family. And everyone is kind of faced with this universal fear of becoming their parents or not learning from their mistakes. And um, I feel very fortunate that my parents have set a very good example for me, but I can definitely relate to that notion of, you know, just wanting to learn from a previous experience and, kind of move on from it our
2: listeners love (laughs) to hear behind the scenes information and we also are total gossips for behind the scene information but one of the things we like are everyone always ends up especially when a cast has been together for a while there's always some kind of memory or some kind of experience that stands out in the production is there one for you that you could share with us not necessarily a scene but something that's behind the scenes something from the set that stands out as a as a memory of working on the show
1: during our first season when You know, the world was a lot different. We would have these very fun cast dinners, which obviously wasn't on set. But it's hard for me because when I'm on set, I I don't work with the whole cast. So I didn't even get to work with Lou until very, very, very recently. And, you know, and Frank, I had my first scene with Frank this season. So I was still waiting on a scene with Keiko. So I really had fun at those dinners last year because for me, that was an opportunity for us all to be together, which was obviously so much fun. Just kind of in smaller ways, it being together at last March, we we were on set until, you know, that final week, we were in New York filming when they had their first case in Manhattan of COVID. And I think that really brought us together in a very unique way. And it was a very unique experience to be in a room with people you knew and loved. And all of a sudden, we're about to go through this life changing time with. And we all kind of sensed that something big was coming. And then again, this season, just coming back together and feeling that trust and that bond that we had, you know, kind of developed from season one, it's just been really comforting and like heartwarming to know that we, we were there for each other. And um, sorry, that's not like an on a fun like prank or silly. No, that's amazing anecdote. But yeah, I just I feel very lucky to have such a great relationship with them and. And that we're able to do what we love.
0: Yeah, it feels like you guys are a family, and that just reinforces it.
1: Yeah, one hundred percent.
0: A fun question that we've been asking. It has been. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, we're trying to, you know, you know, set uh, set everyone up the same way. If you
2: can murder anyone, no, Austin, who no, no, <laughs> no, don't answer
0: that. Wait, answer that. <laughs> yeah, you no, I will uh, never
1: answer that. <laughs>
0: So, I mean, we're getting to see Prodigal Son in, like, post-quarantine times, but the question that we've been asking um, our guests on this podcast have been, if you had to spend a pandemic lockdown with any of the characters from the show, who would it be? The characters or the actors? Either one or both. Yeah. I mean, for the record, I said I would like to spend it with Martin Whitley.
1: <laughs> That's really brave <laughs> you
0: know I'd be That's on the other brave. side of the red line
2: I mean that says something more about Sheila than yeah it's really also. more
0: reflecting I,
1: me but well Sheila I'm really glad we're on the phone uh, <laughs> no I I I really think it'd be very very fun to quarantine with Idrisa and I feel like she's resourceful you know she she always has candy she's a barista of sorts in this episode especially and she would just she she'd make you laugh No matter how dark it got, which is a true testament to her character and uh, very evident on the show.
2: I mean, she's keeping four loco in business, as we learned in this episode. So that alone makes her worth the time to spend with. I
1: think so. It's like constant entertainment. Like you never run
0: out of content with her. Yeah. Like the bondage phase in Hoboken, you know, you can spend your time learning nuts.
1: Oh, yeah. She's got (laughs) she's got endless stories. So I would choose. I choose Idrisa. (laughs) That's fantastic. I
2: love it. I love it. I love it. If we could shift because because I was a fan of your of Alara on The Orville and I was a fan mm-hmm. of The Orville, is there a chance that we ever get to see you go back, uh reappear in the show? You leave the home world, you return to the bridge of the Orville at some point?
1: I think there's there is a chance. <gasps> Ooh. Ooh. Uh, have you kept up have
2: you kept up with the show do you guys do you stay in contact with those guys at all
1: yeah i i keep in touch with all of them i had such a great experience on that show and i do i loved alara i loved playing alara and i just that character will always be very special to me and so i would be very excited have the opportunity to go back and and spend some time with those guys.
0: That's we, so well, exciting. we hope you do. We hope you do. Thank you. So, when Dermot Mulroney began his guest starring role last season as Nicholas Endicott, this wasn't the first time that you had worked with him, right? No, it wasn't. Wow, you're good. Huh? Ah, so I mean, I watch a lot of TV. I mean, my son was very small when uh, Crisis came out, so I had a lot of time to to oh, catch up cool. on things. So, how was it being reunited with him? <laughs> Now that you had the upper hand, <laughs> quite <Yeah. literally. laughs>
1: that's a really fun question. Well, when I first worked with Dermot, oh, wow, I feel like it was a different lifetime ago. I was so young. I had really barely even started acting. Um, I had moved away from home for the first time because uh, my first series, How to Rock, uh, was filmed in L.A., most of my projects at that point had been filmed in LA. And if they hadn't, I was only out of town for a film for just a couple of short weeks, moving to Chicago for a series was kind of a big deal. And I just remember Dermot was so kind and he really took care of us all in, you know, this very paternal way and was just always had a smile on his face. And I was, and am a huge fan of my best friend's wedding. I actually, that, uh, (laughs) to say a little prayer scene i did a flash mob at my best friend's rehearsal dinner at her wedding with that song because we both love that movie so much so i've i've been a fan of his for a very long time oh my god to have the opportunity to work with him after i've been in the business for a little bit longer and i was a little i felt like i had you know come into my own a little more to have more than you know just a a few word conversation with him. I was like this young kid on a set in the new city. Um, but he's so great. And I hope that this is only the second of many, many more chances I have to work with him
2: i'm not gonna lie i squealed a little bit when bellamy starts plinking so, out say a little prayer on the piano in the uh in the season premiere
1: i was like oh my god what a great little easter
2: egg to say goodbye to dermot it was
1: fantastic i laughed out loud when i read that in the script actually for the first time alone in my apartment i was reading that and i, I laughed out loud so you're not alone
0: i was like literally out of the billions of songs that had to be so intentional <laughs>
1: Oh, I—if you talk to one of the writers, you can find out for us. But I don't—I almost don't want to know. I just want to assume it was.
2: <laughs> we we actually asked Sam and uh, and Chris about it, and they played it very cool. They were like, "Oh, oh, well, let me tell you other musical facts about Dermot." And then, yeah. and then they went on to talk about his musical contributions to the show, which also were fascinating. Which were so,
0: very cool, I yeah, know. And yeah. I and he I... had to play during his death scene. <laughs> You did. twisted you did. talk about very, me being twisted that's very twisted. very dark it's a very
1: very dark and twisty thing that they did there but and um, that's
2: this is why we love it but that's why we
0: love it we keep coming back for more
2: awesome you've been so good and uh, giving us so much time to talk today before we go where can people find you on social media this is where people always say oh you know I'm still like little prepper 99 from college uh, but uh, <laughs> where, where can people find you on social media if they want to follow you and keep in uh, keep track of what's going on with you
1: my Instagram is just my name Halston Sage at Halston sage and that is also my Twitter account
2: there you Perfect. go that is so simple we appreciate it
1: so easy <laughs> thank you guys so much this was fun thank you you for being such uh, great supporters of the show we really appreciate it. it makes it more fun to go to work knowing that people are actually watching
2: <laughs> <laughs> well no, thank you thank you for the time and we really hope to you know have you around it's a long season and so we definitely like you to have you back at the uh, clubhouse sometime
1: oh yeah i'd love it i would love it thank Fantastic. you
2: thanks talk to you soon bye All right, guys, we're back. Thank you so much to Halston Sage. You were so much fun to talk to. We really had a great time picking your brain and really going behind the curtain on your role and and being on the show, being on the show during COVID times, and and your take on on Ainsley. It was it was pretty enlightening. And there's never a better source to get information on a character than from the people who played the character. So it was a, it was a really great interview. I'm so happy that we got to sit down with her.
0: Yeah, definitely.
2: Uh, let's do a Dresa's Corner here before we wrap up. Dresa was in rare form, even for her crazy-ass self, tonight. What do you make of this woman?
0: Wow. She's got a lot going on in her brain, for sure. I was confused as to why she was on the caffeinated, you know, trip that she was on, but I guess it was because she had the two bodies in two days that she needed to, to concoct her, her stay up potion and it included coffee and four loco. And I don't know what else was in there because she was like definitely tipsy. I felt. So I am definitely down for Andresa on tequila, for sure.
2: But here's the problem, though. I, I think it was a very funny storyline, but it came and, and it plays for laugh. And it definitely is the comedy relief of the episode. But it actually came with a really significant snafu on her part that she doesn't normally miss Uh, it it takes malcolm looking at the crime report to see that the first victim had should have had one brown eye one blue eye adresa misses the fact that there's a glass eye there to make it two blue eyes because as a debutante in the murder pose uh, she should be perfect Adresa doesn't miss glass eyeballs. that seems like a big deal
0: right. You don't find deep breather and miss glass eye.
2: maybe your nonsense m e working over at law and order misses that bullshit, but Adresa doesn't miss that. I was a little I was a little upset at this. Caffeine, you know, over caffeinated, four loco concoction thing that she is rocking today because it took her off her game. I'm all about Adrisa being awkward, having a fascination with death, and having phone conversations with Martin and and giggling about uh, poking at, poking at glass eyeballs with Malcolm and making gills form. I'm all about that because that's Adrisa just being her true self. This though made her bad at her job. I do not like it. I, I'm curious. If this is the start of something with her, with, with her character, that we're going to have to start worrying about the accuracy because we've never seen her miss something before with all of her awkwardness and all of her social faux pas, and you know, the fact that she hasn't been around non dead people in so long. She's never missed something in her job professionally. I found that a pretty big detail f- to add to her character tonight because of the caffeine, you know, overcaffeinated storyline. You know, whether she's overworked or something else is going on. I mean, you take that together with her little breakdown about the Galapagos Islands and Charlie last week. Again, <laughs> that I mean, again, it was funny, but that was also kind of not really Adresa like. She doesn't. She doesn't usually do. Asides and quips like that, not in a disgruntled penguin kind of way,
0: right? And usually, never of the personal nature like that. Not
2: like that. Not like you know, my best friend, you know, married my boyfriend in the Galapagos Islands. That was a really kind of like negative aspect of Adresa and her missing this aspect of the case. For granted, I mean, I guess the glass eye wasn't a huge. It uh, wasn't a huge case development, but it did point them towards the pursuit of the perfection aspect of it. The fact that he would change the uh, – oh, God, what's it called? Uh, heterochromia iridium. The fact that she would miss that in the case file and not put it together, that's huge. That's it huge big. for – that's big for Adresa to miss. Maybe not for anyone else, but it's huge. Or JT or Danny even. But for Malcolm to have to catch her mistake like that, I, I found that pretty significant.
0: She also knew out of like just like the recall that Max Scherzer of Nationals Pitcher has this heterochromia iridium. And fun fact, I do as well.
2: That is not something I ever knew about you.
0: It's subtle. Um, I have it in one eye. I have two different color browns in one eye.
2: That was not something I ever knew about you.
0: If you see me wearing like a white shirt or uh, in like bright light, it's really stark. So the bottom half of my left eye is like a lighter brown, which mirrors my right eye. But the top half of my left eye is like this dark chocolatey brown. You'd Hmm. have to be staring dreamily into my eyes in order to really kind of pick up on it.
2: Uh, Both of my eyes are the same color brown, but I've been told my whole life it's because I'm just full of shit. (laughs) <laughs> so i don't know i don't know that might be a thing around it uh what a flashback to hear about four loco i don't know if everyone knows about four loco around the country is that's a no-no drink i'm a little shocked that adresa even messes with four loco
0: well you know we do see a little bit of a, a wild side in adresa i'm still curious about her hoboken days
2: yeah i imagine she picked up her four loco habit in her light bondage days back in hoboken why don't you One tell people about uh, tell people about four loco if they don't know
0: Oh, it's just a—it's a caffeinated alcoholic drink, and um, it was just a ton of controversy around it because teenagers are able to get their hands on it, and then they get like super drunk and do like really stupid shit. So, it's just—it's no bueno.
2: I think the only other really interesting thing about Adresa before we finish up here is that she has arcane knowledge of the old telephone system that used to use two letters before. Phone numbers now she doesn't cite for me what I think is the most popular or most well known one at least uh, anyone who ever played in jazz band would know, but I was curious did you did you were you familiar with the two letter and then five digit phone number system that uh, used to pervade the phone system in this country?
0: I was, I grew up in Queens and like we would take the Long Island railroad into the city to do city things. There was this painted ad on the building opposite where we would wait for the train and it was for Kelly's cab company and it was BA 96161. And the reason that is like still emblazoned in my brain is because you see it enough and you have to call it enough that it was just there. So it's two two nine six one six one. But this practice, so I knew about it from that and then just other things and then Pennsylvania 65,000. No,
2: no, stop. It's not Pennsylvania six, five thousand. It's Pennsylvania six five thousand! Doctor Corbino would be ashamed of you. Yeah. Ashamed of you.
0: Well, you know, we want people to keep listening, so me singing Ugh. would not be something that would
2: be a I mean, listen, y'all, go listen to your Glenn Miller and get yourself an education. in Pennsylvania 65,000, That's where I. That's where I first under learned about this whole system. Uh, Pennsylvania standing with the seven three, like that. Uh, Adresa mentions in this episode tonight, um, but the
0: practice was retired in the fifties. So the fact that Adresa knows. About it is not surprising, but it's just it's not something that a lot of people know about. Like you have to kind of be a little bit of an oddball, which is I guess why I know about it too. But I remember even seeing like like notepads and things like that from different businesses, and they they had like the both exchanges. They'd have the the two two for Bayside, and then they would have the B A on their like letterhead logo kind of a thing. So
2: fun fact, I live in upstate New York. I live about an hour north of the city now. And there is a billboard that's been up forever. I mean, it's built up for as long as I've been up here, but it's not ancient. It's a law firm a phone number and it references uh, GL and then the five digit number and standing for Greenwood Lake, which I hadn't seen it forever, but I understood when I saw it. It was you know, a, like uh, 845 GL, you know, six two two whatever it was
0: I lived in Greenwood Lake as a child (laughs)
2: Really? Well, maybe this is your phone number. If you're, if a lawyer ever bought your house, maybe this is the number that they're calling. But it's just, I I see it. It's right by a Dunkin' Donuts that I go to, and I laugh every time because it's such a fucking anachronism that no, no one probably understands what that means. They probably just think the guy got ripped off on his billboard. But no, it's like it's a pleasant little, pleasant little blast from the past, and and goes towards. There used to be letters on phones. I don't know if there are any more, but yeah, they still are. Like
0: even your cell phone has numbers on it. you know you have to uh-huh. spell out like you know like 1-800-FEDEX oh, yeah, sure, or whatever
2: sure. there you go but yeah that's why because the letters you uh, the numbers and letters used to really actually have import and mean something not just for
0: spelling out the company you're trying to call
2: or for spelling like boobs backwards like we used to beeper people oh you the know, beepers the yeah or you know, like help or hello so. it's an
0: older code but it checks out
2: <laughs> there you go <laughs> There you go. There you go. All right, guys, that takes us to another end of The Surgeon Files, your unofficially official Prodigal Son podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back next week for episode
0: six. Yes, if you could head on over to where you get this podcast from to rate, review, and subscribe. And also, if you could leave us a five-star review, that would be greatly appreciated. And it's a fantastic way for other people who are like-minded with The Surgeon Files to find the show and get as much enjoyment out of it as you do. Thanks so much for listening. We really appreciate it.
2: And don't forget, manners matter. And if you don't have manners, someone's creepy secret daughter will come and kill you in your sleep.
0: Thanks for listening. With dead doll eyes.